Thank you, Nancy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning uh, to those worshiping here in the sanctuary, also those across the street in the chapel, and also this morning, special greeting to people who normally attend Bethany North because there's a power outage up north, and so some of you are here uh, with us this morning. It's good to, good to have you as well. It kind of feels like old home week. So uh, Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. Please pray with me, and then we'll look at the scripture. Father, we're so privileged to gather within these walls this morning and listen for your voice, trusting, praying, asking that your Holy Spirit would shape us to be people of hope. As the text says this morning, people shining as light in the world, shining as stars in the midst of darkness. We're mindful of the darkness. It's all around us, at times within us. Would you equip us now, Father, not only to draw near to you as light, but to reflect that light to a world desperate for peace and understanding, for justice and community, for hope and love. Take us there this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. This is my, like I've been here 22 years, this is my favorite sermon title ever. One mind to rule them all and in the light unite them. Doesn't get any better than that if you're kind of a Lord of the Rings fan, right? That came to me by way of revelation from the Holy Spirit. There's just no other way to say it. And for those of you who don't know, because you haven't read Lord of the Rings or even watched the movies or something like that, there's a key phrase that kind of governs that whole trilogy that uh, J.R. Tolkien wrote. And the phrase is one ring, like the ring of power, one ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. One ring to rule them all. Then the premise at a level is this. If we can just get rid of the ring, we're going to enter into basically nirvana. All will be well. Just get rid of the ring. That's all you need to do. And uh, please, if you're a literary critic, just suspend yourself for just a minute here because I'm just going to say whether Tolkien intended that as a message or not, to the extent that any of us believe that just getting rid of the bad guy is the answer, we're, we're missing the point. Always. Uh, the Arab Spring was a great example of that, right? Where people were uh, uprising justly because of oppression, but the fundamental assumption was if we can just get rid of the totalitarianism and the dictator, then we're just going to enter into this era of, of, of great peace and hope. No, we're not. It actually doesn't work. It actually doesn't work that way. That was the Russian Revolution as well. The problem's the Romanovs. Let's just get rid of the Romanovs. We'll be fine. And then Stalin. <laughs> and then Lenin, right? Or then Lenin and then Stalin. This was Libya. Just get rid of Gaddafi. This is Sudan. This is Rwanda. This is today. And the problem is that when people fail to ask what's next, and we just fixate on an issue or a personality and say, if I can change that, all will be fine. When we do that, we have a vacuum. And Luke 11 says that when you leave a vacuum, uh, you cast a demon out of someone, right? Then it says, unless you fill that void with that which is true and right, the, the demon comes back and brings 11 of his friends. And the, and the state of the latter is worse than the former. <laughs> so it's no good to simply look at a, like a person or a situation and say, look, I just want to get rid of that. If I, like, if I just had a different spouse, if I just had different ch children, just different parents, just a different job, just a different president, all would be well. Wrong. Totally wrong. <laughs> the issue isn't uh, getting rid of something. 
the, the, what's, what matters is learning to bring the mind of Christ to bear on every situation. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Philippians is this thank you letter to parishioners who had made considerable sacrifice, actually, to establish a church and maintain it in Philippi. Then they sent an offering to Paul, and Paul is now writing a th- like this thank you note to thank them for their offering and their faithfulness. And embedded in this letter, Paul's addressing the single biggest issue in Philippi that's a threat to the health of the Philippian community. And, this, and so we're going to look at that this morning and learn what Paul perceives for the Philippians as the single greatest problem and the three necessities to achieve a solution. And I think that you'll find with me that their problem is our problem. So let's begin here with the single big, uh, biggest problem, and then we'll look at the solutions. The fundamental challenge for the Philippians is relational. They've got, they've got relationship problems. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, this is uh, exactly what we read. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And, and so you see here that Paul is fingering, right? There's a crux moment where he says, hey, you want to know what your problem is? You guys are actually, in spite of all you have going for you, uh, you're at risk of fragmenting because you're intent on looking after your own personal interests, and th- this is going to lead to a lack of unity. So Paul says, hey, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And I love that language, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Let me make a couple observations here. The fact that Paul's joy is not yet complete, he says, make my joy complete, is the indication that the elements of unity that Paul is looking for are lacking. They don't have the same mind. They aren't maintaining the same love. They aren't united in spirit. They aren't intent on one purpose. Are they saved? Yes. Uh, Are they growing in many ways? Yes. Uh, Is there a good testimony? Yes. Are they living in some ways that sometimes sacrificially? Yes. Are there doctrinal ascents that are accurate? Yes. Worship gatherings? Check. Solidarity with Paul? Check. Desire to make sacrificial offering to help him? Check. And yet, this is what Paul says, they're not complete, even as none of us are complete. Oh, what's missing? Here's what's missing. Uh, Unity is unraveling in Philippi like practical unity. The fact that Paul sees early warning signs of unraveling unity and take pains to address those is priceless for us because it gives us this letter that he wrote. And in so doing, in writing this letter, Paul casts a vision for us of what real unity looks like. It's a very powerful vision because this is what he says. When we're united, what do we have going for us? A, the same mind. That means that we're all looking at life through a common lens then the same love, this is agape love, then united in spirit, then intent on one purpose. Wow. Same love, same mind, united in spirit, one purpose, that's unity, okay? So, when you understand who the Philippians are, the context and the struggle that they have makes a great deal of sense. Why? Because the Philippians are uh, not uh, uh, demographically uh, homogenous, okay? They're rich, they're poor. Uh, they used to be part, of, like, they're located in what was part of the, the great Greek empire, but they're also a retirement community for Roman soldiers, and so they're pro-Rome, anti-Rome. They're educated people, 
and there are illiterate people. There are Roman citizens and non-citizens. In other words, listen, politically, economically, socially, educationally diverse, and men have come to Christ <clears throat> from these various backgrounds, and Paul is writing to say, hey, my vision is that you guys would live practically in a way that is visibly and in reality united in spite of the obvious differences, right? And hear me, these differences are not superficial. Like you translate that to today, what do we have? Well, we got rich and poor, we got master's degree, PhD, people who didn't finish high school, we have young and old, we have you know, homeowners of million dollar homes, we got people living on the streets, we've got, de and worst of all, Democrats and Republicans, all in the same room, right? Like trying to worship together and be united. And Paul's making a dramatic claim here that both the left and right, both socially, uh, theologically, and politically miss. And the dramatic claim is this. If we claim to follow Christ, there's room under this tent for everyone. Everyone. Has to be, right? And so uh, I would argue that if that's Paul's message in, to Philippi, and it is, this message is more timely now than ever before. David Brooks a uh, New York Times columnist wrote an article January 1 of this year about the increasing tribalism in uh, American culture. And he quoted a French intellectual who'd written a book in 1995 entitled The Temptation of Innocence, the thesis of which was this, uh, uh, look, as individualism increases in a culture, paradoxically, the increase of individualism leads to uh, isolation and then when you follow the, th the, the thinking, the thinking is this. Individualism leads to isolation. Isolation leads to the sense of fear and loneliness. And fear and loneliness then leads me to um, identify with a group of people, but the, the group of people with whom I identify, I'm doing so particularly so that they'll reinforce who I already am. Does this make sense? Because I'm lonely. I need reinforcement. And so here's what happens. We gather then with people who think like us, look like us, make money like us, are educated like us. And then in that gathering, we, we draw great strength from a reinforcement of our identity, but the downside of that is this, my tribe is not your tribe, right? And so we, 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 we tribalize politically, economically, educationally, racially, and we're divided. <laughs> and interesting, yeah, that's the way society's going, so that uh, this, this French philosopher said, ironically, uh, though we have all this freedom now uh, uh, to be individuals, our individualism ultimately, ultimately leads to this very destructive tribalism, rich, poor, black, white, Democrat, Republican, young, old, married, single, and into that, God speaks. And, and, and God speaks through Paul, and Paul says this. Yeah, it's a tribal world. It is a tribal world. It was then. It is now. It's probably more so now than then. <laughs> tribal world. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, look, the dividing wall has been broken. When Christ on the cross said it is finished, what he meant by that is every dividing wall that creates tribalism has been in Christ destroyed, annihilated. So that Paul would go on to say then, Galatians chapter 3, there's no longer now, if you're in Christ, no longer rich, poor, uh, Jew, Greek, male, female, black, white, educated, uneducated, homeowner, 
renter, citizen, liberal, Democrat, Republican, forget it. Like if you're in Christ, you're united around the identity of Christ, not your tribal subset. This is huge. So God's plan was uh, that there would be this community who would be brought into eternal fellowship, love, and intimacy with the Father. And then, uh, as, as the world was fragmented, the Son then, Christ, would ultimately become the uni- like the uniting force that would enable tribalism to be destroyed so that the church then could, as Nancy read, shine as a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. How do we shine as light? We shine as light by, by breaking down intentionally every dividing wall. That's how we shine as light. And uh, this is where Paul is going as he challenges the Philippians. He wants them to address <clears throat> the fragmentation. Why? Because Jesus, this is what Jesus prayed in John 17. Last prayer of Jesus praying for disciples for all time, including us, here's Jesus' prayer. He says, Jesus, uh, praying to the Father, Jesus says, I pray for my disciples and those who come after them, praying that they, that's us, that we would be one, but then he doesn't, he doesn't leave it there generically, like kind of this kumbaya unity, right? Oh, yeah, we all hold hands. We say we're one. No, no, this is what he says. My prayer, uh, God, the Father, from Christ, my prayer is that you would make them one even as I, Christ, am one with you, God the Father. Whoa! Now, the, like the bar has just been raised for unity. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because now what that means is we are, we are so united that your interests are my interests. Your well-being is my well-being. Your rejoicing is my rejoicing. Your suffering is my suffering. And, and that's you of a different color, of, 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 of a different race, of a different gender, of a different political party. <laughs> United. And the challenge, of course, is this is precisely where we fail. Precisely where we fail. When I was in seminary in 1982... One of my favorite classes was this class called Theological Problems, and we were all assigned a problem, and we had to write a paper on the problem. And at the time, particularly in the late 70s, early 80s, there was something called the church growth movement in America. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. But in this church growth movement, there were these guys who were positing the thesis that if you really want to grow a church, the best way to grow a church is to target a particular demographic and... and, and unapologetically say, you know, we're going to reach, we're going to reach wh- whoever that demographic is. We're going to reach uh, the African-American community. We're going we're to reach the homeless. We're going to reach uh, the upwardly mobile, highly educated. And be, why? Here's why. Church will grow faster because everyone's going to feel comfortable. And why will everybody feel comfortable? Because like gathers with like. It's the way the world is. And so you really want to reach people for Christ, then put up dividing walls. That's how I interpreted that. Because the church will grow faster. So I was given this as a problem to study. And as I studied the problem, this is what I discovered. A, yeah, the church will grow faster, actually, much faster. And B, hello, that is not the gospel, right? Like that, if you're a disciple, you're called as you be the first to cross any dividing line rather than accommodating dividing lines in the name of kind of a pragmatic desire to quote-unquote grow the church. No. So often, I mean, look at church history, churches have become tribal, often. In the 18th century, 
The Bible was used to justify slavery. There's commentaries still available where you can see that this was the way it worked. And the reality is, to this day, there's a giant gap that's not just racial within the church, but is social educational, is economic, is, is political. So, when we take a snapshot of evangelical Christianity, what do we discover? Like gathers with like. Hyper-individualism. Everybody looking for a tribe. So, and Paul is saying, this is wrong. So what's the solution? Well, there's three solutions. So let's begin here with the first solution. Look, if we're going to solve this, then all of us need A, or number one, we need the mind of Christ. In verse 2, this is what it says. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. All of us of the same, of one mind. And then in verse 5, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ. This is New American Standard, but the literal translation would be have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ. So verse 2, be the same mind. Verse 5, literally, it would read this way, verse 5, the same mind maintaining, right? Uh, so uh, that means we're not called to a shared ideology at the core, we're called to have, verse 5, the mind of Christ. So the mind here, in verse 5, isn't a moral code. The mind is a person. In other words, how do we all align and, and become united? We all be, here's how we all become united. We become united by saying, look, our source of unity isn't Bethany. Our source of unity isn't our like, arcane subset of doctrines that make us distinct or unique. Our source of unity ultimately is this, that I love Christ, know Christ, and Christ lives in me. You love Christ, know Christ, Christ lives in you. That is enough. So now as I live into this reality that I'm called to live allowing the mind of Christ who lives in me, Christ's very mind to govern me, that governance breaks down dividing walls. That's what happens. Because when I have the mind of Christ, then I do what Christ did. And what did Christ do? We, we're told, verse 4, Christ didn't just look out for his own interests. He looked out for the interests of the other. The other who was, by the way, wildly different than he. Even within his group of disciples, uh, uh, not homo uh, homogenized, not homogenized, but diverse. So, so here's Jesus, like, uh, breaking down dividing walls. And I have the mind of Christ then I also will what? I'll break down dividing walls. So this means that our calling isn't to pursue even unity first or pursue systems or pursue, or pursue power or pursue influence. You know, we're going to change the city. That's not the first thing. The, what's the first thing? We pursue Christ. Because when I have the mind of Christ, Christ becomes the unifying factor uh, that would other, where we'd otherwise become fragmented. So I have, to pursue, I have to pursue the mind of Christ. Paul, this is what Paul says in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ. That's it. That's number one pursuit. I want to know Christ. Uh, and wow, how do you do that? Here's how. You need a rule of life. And you're like this. Really? That was fall. That was last year. Let it go, Richard. And I, look, I'm not going to let it go. Why? Because you need habits that, that enable you to listen to Christ so that you can literally know then the mind of Christ. That, 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 that's the piece of it, you see? Because when I, when I align to Christ and you align to Christ, by virtue of both of us aligning to Christ, what happens? We align with each other. The walls begin to, uh, begin to fall down. 
Uh, last night, it was a real joy for me to introduce to my wife for the very first time opera. She'd never been to an opera in her long, long life. <laughs> never. And, and not as long as mine, yes, a point. And uh, it, was, it was great to take her and expose her to that. It was really fun. But there was a moment at the beginning that reminded me of exactly what we're talking about. Because at the uh, beginning, before the house lights drop, the very first thing that's a sign that uh, to use, this is sports crowd largely, so pregame's over, right? How do you know that? Because the oboe will play an A, right? That's a note, an A if you're not musical. Play the A, and then, every, then it's quiet. Just for a minute, it's totally quiet. And then you begin to hear people playing their instrument and adjusting, aligning their strings to that A. Every, and everyone does it. And then it kind of gets quiet again, and then the conductor comes out, and people cheer, and then the music begins. This moment when the oboe plays, this, it's a picture of unity. And it, it, like I used to play in orchestras, and uh, I love going to symphony, love going to the, uh, I love opera, all good. But this moment, I love this moment. Why? Because in all my years of seeing music, participating in music, <clears throat> no one ever has gone to the oboe and said, I don't like your A. <laughs> uh, in fact, I think your A is a little sharp, so could you adjust your A so that, so that like, you sound more like me? No one does that. Like, it's kind of universally agreed that the oboe is the, kind of the gold standard in that moment, and if I don't happen to like it, whatever, I'm aligning to the A. That's the way it works. That's the only way it works. If, it, if I don't align to that A, I'm out, right? And now we're divided. This is, a, this is exactly the point. Like, the good news of the gospel is this, there's an oboe, and his name is Jesus, right? And, and, and no, it's funny, but not. Like, like we're all called to, to, to be so in love with Christ, so pursuing Christ, that, that the mind of Christ that belongs to us, 1 Corinthians 2.16, actually becomes the mind that governs our lives. We adapt to Christ. That's it. That's how unity happens. Because when we adapt to Christ, we begin to look like Christ. And what does that mean? We've, we give up our rights. We serve. We're willing to suffer on, be, on behalf of another. We don't cling to our rights because we've aligned to Christ who is our life. So when we have habits of intimacy, we know Jesus and we know the mind of Jesus. But without habits of intimacy then uh, we're left to our own devices uh, to govern our lives. Uh, I, know my, uh, I know the mind of my wife, in a sense, uh, and I know that one of her love languages has to do with uh, the wood box in our home because we burn wood. So there's things I know. I know that when I'm coming down here to live down in the city for a few days, uh, she's very happy if the kindling box is filled before I leave. Very happy. And very sad. V angry, really. <laughs> if, if that box is not filled with, with kindling, right? And very happy when, you know, there's a stack of, like, when, when I'm home, I bring one piece of wood in at a time from outdoors to, put, to toss in the fire. She likes all the wood to be in the house drying ahead of time so it burns hotter, which makes sense. But I'm lazy. I don't do it that way. Other than uh, 
when I'm going to leave, I'm like, I know the mind of my, this is the mind of my wife. How do I learn that? Intimacy. Do you understand? Like, how do you learn the mind of Christ? Intimacy. So, this is the first thing. Uh, we need the mind of Christ to be governing our lives, and when the mind of Christ is governing our lives, here's what happens. Jews and Palestinians worship together. It's happening right now uh, in, in bordered Israel and Palestine. <laughs> Blacks and whites. Tutsi and Hutu in Rwanda. Rich and poor. Homeless and, 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 and homeowners. Oh, and get this, Democrats and Republicans. Yes, it's possible. It can happen. God can unite when we have the mind of Christ. Second, uh, we need to find our middle voice. Look at verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as uh, you have always obeyed in my presence, so uh, not in my presence only, but also much more in my absence, here's the command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So uh, let me just unpack this very quickly for you. Uh, there's a powerful and important message here in this, one of the, I think one of the most profound texts in the Bible, because this, this text reveals the interplay of your human responsibility with God's divine power and working in your life. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work within you. What does that even mean? If it's God who's working, what do I have to do anything for? Well, here's the deal. We live uh, in the English language predominantly using two voices, the active voice and the passive voice. The, what's an active voice? The active voice is, I did this. I drove to church this morning. That's the active voice. Here's the passive voice. I was driven to church this morning. Like, I didn't drive. Somebody else drove. So I was there. I reap the benefits of someone else's behavior, but I didn't do it, right? Active, passive. And, and theologically, often evangelicals have, have broken out into kind of two groups, the activists who are like this, pray, read your Bible, study, uh, give, tithe, serve, and, you know, do more, because if you don't do more, uh, then it's, it's uh, like it's up to you, right? Or the passive voice. Look, God's the one who saved you. God called you. Uh, God, God bought you. God indwells you. God animates you. So just let God, just relax and let God do it. Right? Not I, but Christ, says Paul. Well, I've talked to students, particularly in the torture community where I teach, who really have been kind of derailed by misunderstanding this. Oh, not I, but Christ. So, Richard, you know, I'm five years into this Christian journey and I'm not growing. And I go, why? Well, because nothing's happening. Well, what do you mean nothing's happening? Well, I lay in bed in this morning and, and I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I don't do anything because God has to do it. God, what? God has to animate you and get you up, open the word for you, dictate it from heaven? No. no listen, your discipleship isn't the active voice or the passive voice. It's the middle voice. Because what is the middle voice? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the middle voice. The middle voice means this. I'm actively participating in the results of an action that another initiates. Actively participating in the results of an action that another initiates. Now the gospel makes sense. There's kind of two uh, uh, misrepresentations. If, if the gospel were the passive voice, it's like uh, you're watching TV. Like when you're watching TV, you're, say you're watching a sport on television. You may be vicariously invested, <clears throat> but you're not really doing anything. And sometimes people feel that that's the Christian life. You know, unless God does it, 
You know, it's God to will and to work for his good pleasure. Unless God does, so I don't have to do anything. I just have to relax and watch what God does. No, that's the passive voice. The active voice is like a, um, a solo sport. You know, running a marathon, downhill skiing. Like, I have to do it. And if I don't go fast, nobody goes fast because it's up to me. That's the active voice. Well, what's the middle voice then? Here's the middle voice. Tennis is the middle voice. Do you understand? Hey, I serve. I, God, serve. And now the ball is what? We have the saying, don't we? The ball's in your court. Oh, there it goes. <laughs> Why? Well, you know, God has to hit it. No, he doesn't. Your move, middle voice. God started. Now, you'll hear this phrase around here, what's what? What's your next step? What's your next step? What are you going to do? Because this is, this is ultimately the gospel is this volley between God's action and your response to God's action. That's the way the gospel works all the time, right? So you see it over and over again. Uh, God created you. God wooed you. God convicted you <clears throat> through brokenness, failure, frustration, boredom. God called you. And then uh, it's your move. So Moses, lift your stick, I'll part the water. Once the water parts, your turn again, send people through. Once people go through, God's turn again, the water collapses. Uh, once they're on the other side and do a little dance and some worship, God's turn again, there's a flame to guide them by the night. Now it's their move, they have to follow the flame, right? Over and over, back and forth. So, so that the way that we grow in Christ and ultimately are united is to always be asking the question, God, what's the next step you have for me? What's the next step? And then to take that step, realizing that when you take the step, God will provide the power for you to take the step that you don't even think you can take. Because sometimes the step that God has for you is daunting. God says, hey, it's time for you to confess. It's time for you to tell someone about your secret hidden sin. Time for you to confront, forgive, give, serve, pray, read, open your door, hospitality, let go, time to move, time to stay. You have a next step, so do I. And the next step activates the middle voice that enables God to continue to work. Remember, the parable of the seed of the sower says that often uh, the seed germinates but then dies. It, listen, when it dies, don't blame God because when it dies, here's what happened. You had a next step and you didn't take it. And two million people died in the wilderness, never entering into the life for which they were created because they refuse to take a next step of gratitude, actually. Which leads us to the third necessity. Verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, <clears throat> so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Third, so... Right? We, we, we need uh, the middle voice. We need the mind of Christ. And then third, we need to stop grumbling. It's pretty practical stuff. Stop grumbling. Look at verse 14 again. Do all things without grumbling. So 1 Corinthians 10 tells us about this whole generation that was delivered miraculously out of slavery. God saved them. God led them through the Red Sea God destroyed their enemies. They're on a journey 
to a new place, and that new place represents an abundant life of peace and blessing and the capacity to bless and serve the world. And though they were saved, they put blood on the door, they believed, though they started the journey, they didn't finish. That's a warning, says Paul. And then he says, so therefore, look, if, if you don't want the same fate that happened to them to happen to you, therefore, Paul says it, read it, 1 Corinthians 10, stop grumbling. Because grumbling will prevent your entrance into the life for which you're created. Stop, stop whining. The complaint uh, when Israel was wandering around in the wilderness happened when hardships and unchosen events came into the lives of people, and then they would, then they would complain. So that by the time uh, Israel was about two years in to their 40-year journey in the wilderness, two years in, you can, like, you can make a catalog of their complaints, and they complain about everything. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, you know what? We hate it out here in the desert, stupid, we hate this stupid desert. We don't like the, you know, we don't like the desert. We don't like the weather. We don't like the m- m- food, the manna. We don't like Moses. We don't like Moses' wife. We don't like the s- heat. We don't like nighttime. We don't like Aaron. We don't like Aaron's wife. We don't like the fact that Moses is a leader. In fact, we don't like anything. In fact, you know what? We like, we like Egypt. That's what we like. We love it back there. Yeah, slavery. Sla- I'll take slavery with garlic over freedom in the desert every time. Right? Just give me garlic. That's it. The whole time, listen, always then what? Blind to everything God had done. Oh, yeah, right. You hate it here? Remember when you're thirsty? Do you have water, by the way? Yeah. Water where there's none. <laughs> food where food doesn't grow. Shoes in the desert that never wear out. I saw a guy hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. He was on his fifth pair of shoes in, in 100 days. Your shoes never, they've never worn out. Like, wake up. <laughs> I'm taking care of you, says God. Yeah, but you know what? I hate my job. Yeah, you have a job. Oh, yeah, I hate the rain. Really? Take another drink of water and still hate the rain. I, oh, my spouse, my family, my family of origin, my children, my parents, my health. I, listen, I get it. Life's hard. That's not the point. Paul is not saying, hey, you don't have any problems. In fact, exactly opposite, biographically here, Paul is elevating himself as an example. Because what does Paul say? Chapter one. Hey, let me just remind you, A, I was unjustly arrested. B, I was unjustly tried. C, I was unjustly imprisoned, been beaten, times without number. I know hunger, I know thirst, I know cold. Now that I'm in prison, there are people outside of prison seeking to malign my ministry out of jealousy. And I'm telling you, don't grumble. Because <laughs> I'm not grumbling. In fact, verse 17, if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you. And I, I urge you, this is what he says, I urge you, oh, you also rejoice. Wow. Here's, what, here's Paul. He's able to acknowledge all these realities of injustice and suffering and difficulty. Oh, yes, absolutely. This isn't Pollyanna. This is looking at life with 20-20 vision. Is life hard? Yes. Have I been unjustly treated? Yes. And yet confident that in every circumstance... Christ can use that circumstance 
to transform me so that even more of Christ can be seen. Listen, even the bad circumstances he can use. Oh, man. If I could just get that, I'd be fine. But here's the thing. If you're like me, often the language that creeps into my life that's destructive is this, if only. Do you know what I mean by that? If only. And then, and then there's a litany of things. If only my circumstances were different. If only in uh, that last um, uh, visit to the hospital, there hadn't been complications. If, if only my dad hadn't died when I was 17. If only my adoptive mom hadn't given me up. If only I didn't live in the big city. If only I wasn't next door to a Republican. If only. If only. Like, and then we grumble, right? Think, and implicit in grumbling is this. If my circumstances change, everything's, everything's fine, right? Just get rid of Gaddafi, and it's going to be like heaven in Libya. Oh, no. Look, Paul is able to say instead of if only, thank you. Hear me. Not, oh, thank you, God, that my dad died. That was just the coolest day ever. No, 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 no. No, here's it. Thank you, God, that in the, in the wisdom and mystery of the gospel, you use even the darkest moments to transform me. So thank you, God, for what you can do through the loss of my dad. That out of that darkness came an understanding of what it means that God is my father. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, God, that in my moment of victimization, you were there. Thank you, God, that in this job that I don't like, I have a job. <laughs> Enable me to shine as light until you open something different. Thank you. I, the best example I've ever seen of this kind of praying it comes from a Civil War soldier who had a prayer in the pocket of his shirt. He was then found on the battlefield, and uh, the prayer was saved, memorialized, published, and here we are 150 years later reading it together this morning as a prayer. So would you stand and please pray with me as we look at a man who understood what it means to replace if only with thank you. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Please be seated. And as we close this morning, my invitation to you is this. Would you please learn to replace if only with thank you? You can populate our prayer books with that very prayer. God, thank you for how you will use this loss of employment. Thank you for how you will use this challenge of aging parents. Thank you for how you will use uh, my marriage that failed. Thank you. Not that it's good, but that we can learn 
to live above the grumbling because we believe that the mind of Christ and the power of Christ is continuing to transform us. The books are here for prayer, and I pray that you will respond with me in replacing your if-onlys with thank you. Father, meet us now in our response. We're grateful that we have, in this moment right now, the mind of Christ who can bring us together in unity. Would you take us there? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.